So why did they keep digging up corpses in New England, cutting out their hearts, burning their hearts and livers, or chopping them up and making them into an elixir? Let's find out. I'd done quite a few stories about English ghosts, and I thought, I'll tell you what, I'll just just fancy a change. And so uh, I was leafing through one of the many books I've got. I buy these books on the on the justification, oh, well, they'll come in useful for research or something or doing stories, but that's not really why I buy them. I buy them because I'm addicted. I know that. But I've got this book called The Complete Book of Vampires by a guy called Leonard R.N. Ashley. And I was leafing through it and I said, oh, New England vampires, that sounds really good. And then I kind of went off and did my own research on it, so here we are. So we imagine that vampire hysteria was mainly located amongst the peasant populations of Central and Eastern Europe, but that is not so. There were vampire epidemics in the United States of America too. In the 19th century, there was an outbreak of tuberculosis in Rhode Island, Eastern Connecticut, Southern Massachusetts, Vermont, and other parts of the New England states. This led to the New England vampire panic. For context about vampires... The, the Dracula was published in 1897, Carmilla by J.S. Lefano, 1872, and The Vampire by John Polidori in 1819. So the idea of the undead and the vampire wasn't known to English speakers during the early to late uh, 19th century, at least educated ones. On uh, September 26, 1859, Henry David Thoreau, that great man, wrote in his journal, The savage in man is never quite eradicated. This is 1859, remember. I have just read of a family in Vermont who several of its members, having died of consumption, just burned the lungs and heart and liver of the last deceased in order to prevent any more from having it. This was not an unusual belief, as we found out. I didn't know this, but I do now. Um, When people from rural Rhode Island moved west into Connecticut, the people in Connecticut there thought that they were uneducated and vicious, can you believe? And this was said to be because the people from Rhode Island believed in vampires. But it wasn't just Rhode Island that believed in vampires. The New Englanders' belief in vampires seems solely to have been due to the superstitions about tuberculosis. There's an interesting belief about tuberculosis called then mainly consumption. I thought it was called consumption because it consumed or ate up the sufferer. But the, but the reason given here why it's called consumption is even weirder. I'm going to say something in passing about tuberculosis. It's an ancient infection. Uh, And it has been found in human remains from the Stone Age. And when the Greeks were writing, Herodotus was writing, and the pyramids were under construction, people had um, tuberculosis. And it's even in the Old Testament, describes a chronic and wasting lung infection, strikingly similar to TB. Um, Before the late 19th century, people didn't really understand how it was transmitted or what caused it. So uh, in many cases, some of their ideas about what caused it, as we'll see, were completely way out of the mark. So they believed that it could be cured by the touch of a king by various herbal remedies and bloodletting. And then in the 19th century, we have this idea of these um, consumptive poets, rather pallid and worn and romantic, and it was quite a a, a cool way, in in a funny way, to die. Of course, some members of my family, going back, my uh, grandmother's um, sister died of consumption. But one of the weirdest and long-standing beliefs of the cause of tuberculosis was that it was caused by vampires. Of course, we know now that it's caused by bacteria, and as soon as we developed antibiotics, we were able to almost eradicate it, although there are 
um, variants coming back that are resistant to the antibiotics that we have. So, and that is a real big problem, antibacterial resistance from caused by overuse of antibiotics in people, people coming for antibiotics when they don't need them, coming with viral infections and asking for antibiotics because they don't really understand that they won't work. And also massive amounts of antibiotics being used in cattle to make them bigger and beefier and other animals like that to stop them all dying like um, chickens in battery hens, you know, in these pens which, which are rife with disease. So anyway, that's a, aside. You, I work in a GP surgery, so obviously I'm going to think about that. But yeah, it's caused by bacteria. But people used to think that consumption, the old name for tuberculosis, was caused by the dead eating the life of their living relatives. So in order to identify the culprit, local folks held an exhumation of those who had died and examined their remains. The bodies were dug up and their organs burned in a ritual to stop the vampire from attacking the local people and stop thus the disease from spreading. Cases like those of Mercy Brown in Rhode Island and Frederick Ransom in Vermont got a lot of attention and talk across the country. And this is clearly not the blood-drinking vampire of modern law, but it's still a person who lives on after death in belief and consumes the living causing them to die. So it is, it is a case of vampirism, really. TB spreads easily within a family. So when someone dies of consumption, the family members catch it very uh, quickly and get sick. Uh, people thought that this was because, as we've said, that the TB patient who died was taking the life out of their kin. And it was a common belief, bizarre and forgotten really, but bizarre. So anyway, the big case is one of the later cases actually, was the Mercy Lena Brown case. So in 1892 in Rhode Island, there was the case of a vampire, so-called, named Mercy Lena Brown. It's one of the best documented cases of a body being dug up so that rituals could be done to get rid of a vampire. The mother, Mary Eliza, died of the disease first, then in 1884, their oldest daughter, Mary Olive, died of the same disease. In 1891, the disease also spread to Mercy, the daughter, and Edwin, the son. Mercy Brown, who was 19, Mercy Lena Brown, died in January 1892. Friends and neighbours of the Brown family thought that one of the dead Browns was a vampire, and they thought that that dead person was the one who was making the son Edwin sick. George Brown, the father, was persuaded to let the bodies of some of his family be exhumed. On March 17, 1892, St. Patrick's Day, people from the village, the local doctor and a newspaper reporter dug up the bodies. This is not that long ago, you know. Both Mary, in a, in a Western civilised country, you know, in the east, in the northeast of the USA, the most uh, urban and connected part of the USA in those days, certainly. Um, but um, both Mary and Mary Olive's the mother and the, one of the daughters, showed the right amount of decay. That's a weird thought, of the right amount of decay. So they were not thought to be the cause of this disease. But the body of Mercy, Mercy Lena Brown, showed almost no signs of decomposition, and her heart apparently still had liquid blood in it. So we see, even though uh, tuberculosis is not a circulatory disease, a disease of the blood, and vampires are traditionally associated with the blood, the blood is the life, etc. Um, there is a connection still. And, and this is like 1892. So we've got a number of popular vampire stories being published, although, you know, um, Dracula itself wasn't published until five years later. There is a theory that 
um, Bram Stoker had heard this story, which was quite possible because he travelled around all the place. And this was his inspiration for Lucy Westenra in Dracula. And if you haven't heard my version of Dracula, please uh, nip over to Bandcamp and look for the Classic Ghost Stories podcast and uh, buy it. Actually, you can listen to it free, uh, which is very kind of Bandcamp. <laughs> Did you hear the little bitterness there? It's very kind of Bandcamp to let you listen to the whole book three times before you have to pay anything, which is great for everybody except me. Never mind. So, um, yeah, Mercy Lena. So what did they think? They thought, well, okay, we found the vampire Mercy Lena Brown. What we need to do is to, and this is really weird because this isn't really related to the European vampire uh, or the Eastern European vampire. They had to dig her up and make her body parts into a tonic, which they gave to young Edwin, right? So they burned her heart and liver, and the ashes were mixed with water to make a tonic. That's pretty grim. The sick son, Edwin, who had tuberculosis, was given this tonic of the ashes of his sister's heart and liver to drink, to cure him, and to stop the undead from affecting him. Two months after that, the young man died. So it didn't work, you know? And it will never have worked, of course. It never, never will have worked. But um, people kept taking it. That's nuts, isn't it? Fancy you've got a cure. He's told this is a cure. It doesn't work, but you keep taking it. And you're still not cured. And you keep taking it. It's mad. So um, the case of Mercy Brown was the inspiration of a short story called So Runs the World Away by Caitlin R. Keenan. I've just finished reading her book, The Drowning Girl, which I got in Providence, actually, in a bookshop there. And this talks about this case. Scholars have also said, we say this, that um, um, Bram Stoker, who published Dracula five years later, and would have been writing Dracula a year or two after this case was in the newspapers, because it was in the newspapers. And it's also, the case is also mentioned in The Shunned House by that other um, horror writer from New England, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. The next case, the next most famous case, is Frederick Ransom from South Woodstock, Vermont. But this is 75 years earlier, okay? So this, this, these beliefs, they were folk beliefs, they persisted. Anyway, 75 years earlier, Frederick Ransom, who lived in South Woodstock, Vermont, died on February 14th, St. Valentine's Day. Oh, died on Saints Day, it's weird. 1870, but that is because every day is a Saints Day, to be fair. 1817, at the age of 20, he had tuberculosis, no surprise. And his brother later wrote, who was, who was, was really traumatised by the whole thing, by the doctor coming, he says, uh, and in this excerpt, he says, Frederick Ransom, the second son of my father and mother, was born in South Woodstock, Vermont, June 16th, 1797, and died of consumption, February 14th, 1817, at the age of about 20. He had a good education and was a member of Dartmouth College at the time of his death. My remembrance of him is quite limited, as I was only three years old at that time. It has been related to me that there was a tendency in our family to consumption. See, there isn't a tendency... It's a, it's a bacterial infection. It's funny people believe things, don't they, that aren't true. Including me, probably. It seems that father shared somewhat in the idea of hereditary diseases, and withal had some superstition, for it was said that if the heart of one of the family who had died of consumption was taken out and burned, others would be free from it. And father, having some faith in the remedy, had the heart of Frederick taken out after it had been buried, and then it was burned in Captain Pearson's blacksmith forge. However... It did not prove a remedy, for mother, sister and two brothers died of that disease afterwards, so it still doesn't work. There's a hundred years of it not working, and people keep doing it. 
Uh, his father was afraid that the dead son, apparently, this is recorded elsewhere, Frederick would attack his family. And this is why I had him dug up. Uh, and he, he, was, he was not an uneducated man. He was at Dartmouth College. These were not poor people. So this hysteria, which we would call it now, because we would call a hysteria a, a kind of irrational belief that's wild, widely held despite all evidence, and driven by fear as well, that's a big part. It's, you know, it's a very scary thing, this disease that comes and chokes you, you know, eats your lungs away and you die. Uh, and, you know, we don't know what causes it at that time. And we don't know how to cure it at that time. Very, very scary. You would be driven by fear into all sorts of things. We see this in all sorts of um, cures that don't work, uh, that people turn to because of desperation, really. So, next one. Sarah Tillinghast, Exeter, Rhode Island. This story happened in 1799. Not too um, far from, uh, just two years different from Frederick Ransom, but again, 93 years before the case, the first case, the most famous case of Mercy Lena Brown from Exeter. They're in a, this is also Exeter, you know. Uh, Farmer Stuckley Tillinghast had a nightmare that half of his apple trees died and withered away. Funnily enough, I was just reading a book about uh, Jungian dream analysis, about um, deaths of dreams that foretell death of you or your family, you know. And uh, this, this is classic, I would have said. Stuckley and his family had a successful farm with a thriving apple orchard that they sold apples from. Big deal in New England apples, you know. I never realised that until I started doing some research. And, of course, the Hawthorne Hotel in Salem, Massachusetts, which is supposed to be haunted by a lady who had an apple orchard there. And so one of the signs of the ghost is the smell of apples in the hotel. There we are, just a little digression. Um, so Sarah Stuckley got died. He's the farmer's, she's the farmer's daughter. Ruth, another of Stuckley's daughters, got sick soon after Sarah died. This time, though, Ruth said that her sister, Sarah, dead sister, was the one making her suffer. Ruth said that Sarah came to her in the middle of the night and sat on different parts of her body, causing great pain. And not long after that, Ruth also died. This dead Sarah visited all of the Tillinghouse children, not just Ruth. After their sister came to them, one by one, Stuckley's children got sick and died. Honor, Stuckley's wife, also started getting visits from Sarah in the middle of the night. When another child got sick, people started to think seriously that the dead girl was to blame. And they decided, I think at that time they weren't sure which it was, so they decided to dig up all of, her children, all of his children's bodies. The people who lived nearby helped dig up the bodies. Except for one, they had all de decomposed in the way we'd expect. But even though Sarah Tillinghast was the first to die, her eyes were still open, her heart was full of fresh red blood again, this is absolutely characteristic of the vampire, isn't it? And her hair and nails had grown. This seemed to show that the Tillinghast children's deaths were caused by someone else. I've written that, but I don't know what that means. Before putting the bodies back in the ground, they took Sarah's heart out and burned it on a rock. The boy was too sick to get better and he died, but the ritual did help his wife honour. I don't think so. She got better and she lived until she was 86. Well, yeah, I don't think it was a burn in the heart that did it. That's just me, though. Uh, Seven of Stuckley Tillinghurst, 14 children had died. I've got two versions of his name, Tillinghurst and Tillinghast. Stuckley's dream, but of course in those days spellings varied. Um, Stuckley's dream had come true about the apple orchard, but he had lost half his family instead of half of his orchard. The Tillinghurst family is buried at the Rhode Island Historical Cemetery, Exeter, number 14, 
which is on Forest Hills Drive in Exeter, if you're only there, interestingly. The cemetery is only 2.5 miles away from Mercy Brown's grave. Okay, Nancy Young, next one. Foster, Rhode Island. The next time a vampire was seen in Rhode Island was around 1827. This was Nancy Young, who also died of consumption. Nancy Young was the oldest daughter and second oldest of Captain Levi Young and his wife Anna's eight children. After Captain Levi Young retired from the military, he moved to a farm in Connecticut. When Nancy was old enough, she took on the job of keeping the farm's books. Nancy got sick out of the blue when she was 19 years old. At first the family thought it was just a cold, but then they learned it was consumption. She stayed in bed for a month until she finally died of tuberculosis. Usually it took them longer to die than that. One by one, the young family got sick, starting with Almira and her siblings. The sickness was, had the same symptoms as Nancy's sickness. Captain Young thought it was a sign of the dead coming back to life. You may, you know, as we've said, that would have been a common thing to jump to. He dug up and burned the body of his oldest daughter, Nancy. He told the sick family member to stand next to the fire and breathe in the smoke, thinking that it would cure them and keep the rest of his family from getting sick. But Almira died on August 19, 1828, when she was only 17. Only three of his eight children lived to grow up. Now, we've got, there's a lot of these. The Spalding family in Drummerston, Vermont. And this was Lieutenant, or Lieutenant, Leonard Spalding's family in Dummerston, Vermont, which is about five miles north of Battleboro. Even though Lieutenant Spalding's children, especially his sons, grew up to be big and strong, all but one or two of them died of consumption before they turned 40. They only got sick for a short time. People who remember the event say that after six or seven of the family died of consumption, another daughter died of what was thought to be the same disease. People thought she would die, and a lot was said about how so many people in her family had died of consumption, even though they'd all seemed to be in good health and looked as if they would live a long time. In those days, people believed that a vine or root grew from one coffin to the next of those from the same family who died of consumption and were buried next to one another. This is actually another old idea. It's not just found here that this vine or root will grow from one coffin to the other of the related. So when the vine reached the coffin of the last person buried, another member of the family would die. The only way to stop the effect was to break the vine and burn the vitals of the last person buried. So it's slightly different. It's not that they're coming back and... Uh, infecting it's just that uh, you've got to stop the um because you know it's the next one in line isn't it um, it reminds me of an ef benson story um the room in the tower so the body of the last child in this case was dug up the organs were taken out and burned nasty after this it's said that the sick daughter got better and lived for a long time i don't believe that rachel harris manchester vermont captain isaac burton a lot of them were military men as well uh, but these i suppose this is just after the Revolutionary War, so many people would have been in the army, wouldn't they? Rachel Harris, Captain Burton's first wife, died in, 19, in 1917, 1790. She's buried at Factory Point Cemetery, owned by the town of Manchester. She was a fine, healthy, beautiful girl. But after they got married, she got sick, and after a year, died of consumption. After a year after that, Captain Burton married Hulder Powell. Hulder was a healthy, pretty girl, but soon got ill herself. And as she was coming to, to, to the end of her illness, family members and friends became obsessed with the idea that um, she was being killed by the first wife who was undead. They started to believe that the vital organs of the first wife could be burned in a charcoal fire. That's interesting. Why particularly charcoal? It would cure the second wife. So they dug her up. They'd been dead about three years. They took out what was left of the liver, heart and lungs and burned them to ashes in Jacob Mead's blacksmith's shop. So we see another blacksmith's shop being put to this use. 
There were about 500 and 1,000 people there to watch. That's grim, isn't it? Um, and we are going to come to the last two lot, the Ray family from Jewett City, Connecticut. In the middle of the 1800s, several family members died of consumption. We know this. They thought that the sickness was caused by something supernatural. So there's a whole bunch of them. Henry B. Ray, Lucy H. Ray, their sons Lemuel Billings Ray, 24 son, they all die. And three people in the family died in six years. And the, the, the next son, Henry Nelson Ray, in 1854, began to show signs of consumption. So what they did, of course, was they went to the cemetery where his previous um, victims of the, of the disease of his family had gone. And, so, and a group of them got together and they dug them up and they burned the bodies of, to stop the consumption spreading. There's no record to say whether it actually worked. And then there was another record. This isn't actually on the record, but it was found archaeologically. So in 1990, three boys playing near a sand and gravel pit in Griswold, Connecticut, pulled two human skulls out. And then they had a look around and they found it was a, a farm grave. Now, apparently this is not uncommon in New England, in remote farms. Rather than go to a church, the family would be buried locally on the farm ground. The fourth grave... Um, they found in the coffin a body whose skull had been cut off at the spine and placed on a broken chest along with the femurs to make a skull and crossbones. So they put the, the, the femurs in a, in a cross. And it was marked JB55. And it looked like, it, this looks like a vampire ritual. And um, it was, f when they looked at this guy, they identified him and he was one of the, the barber family. And he was a, just, a, he was a farm labourer, died in his 50s. And from the marks on his um, bones, and, this, and the way his body um, looked afterwards, what was remaining of it, he had died of uh, consumption, tuberculosis. So, and, and funnily enough, two things come to mind. This is from memory, so it's vague. In Anak in the northeast of England in the 1200s, there was a story about a local lord who died and who um, was later seen wandering around the town praying and making people ill. So this idea that the dead passed disease, of course, is true, because the decaying body harbours all sorts of uh, bacteria that will cause illness. But they suspected it was this dead nobleman, and they dug up his body, and lo and behold, it's not, de not composed, and there's fresh blood. So this is the sign of the vampire, isn't it? There's fresh blood, and the body is not decomposed. And this, of course, is the root of the vampire hysteria, right across Europe as well. So there's something about the dead coming back. But isn't it funny how... We as a, as a species, we fear our own dead, even people we've loved very much in life. The idea that the body of a human being, we, we believe, or, you know, when we're superstitious, we believe it might come back, and it's quite horrific. It's kind of the basis of a million horror movies and, and books, isn't it? So, but what is the conclusion of this? Well, it's easy to sit and be modern and think about these things, but I think the basis is, if you have got something that's killing people and it's out of control and nobody has any bright ideas about how to keep you from dying, you're going to kind of rack your brains for anything. And some of those anythings you come up with are going to be pretty weird. And it's funny, you know, if people say, well, this works, this works, you know, uh, you're going to try it, aren't you? And so we have people who are ill these days trying all sorts of strange things that there's not massive evidence that they work and even uh, you know like 
I shouldn't say this, but I don't want to offend anybody, but really, homeopathy doesn't really appear to work. Um, crystal healing doesn't really appear to work. Uh, and I know Sheila's, I hope she doesn't listen to this because this would be the end of us. But um, I can't see how it works. I, I'm, I'm willing to be proved wrong, but I can't see it. And there are other uh, things that don't work that we keep on taking. Um, and there we are. So, but it's hard because if everybody else in your community is saying this, and what happens is people become frightened. And if you, if they say, look, it, you've got to eat the heart. You've got to dig up your sister and eat her heart. Okay, you've got to do it. And you're going, oh, that's nonsense. They are frightened because they believe it's true. So they believe this is the cure. So they're going to become very hostile to you. And you become the enemy because you are stopping the thing they believe will cure them. And so you are you are making them more fearful. So they're never going to listen to you because they're too terrified. And it's only when they, when things, when antibiotics come along and they cure tuberculosis, people go, oh, of course it isn't hearts. Of course it isn't. You haven't got to dig up the heart. But until we've got that cure and we're in the grip of fear, we're very irrational creatures in the grip of fear. And I end, I've just written this article. I'll put a link to it where I put pretty much what I've said here. And we say about Kipling, you know, is if, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make an allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. So that's the great gift, isn't it? I wish, I wish I was like that. I wish I was like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that poem out. And that will be my New Year's resolution for 2023. Hope you enjoyed that. Skip across the Atlantic, the other side of the Atlantic. Have a look at something different from ghosts. Probably go back to ghosts next week, but who knows? Okay, hope you're all well. Bye-bye.